Good morning, church. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 35 for our scripture reading this morning. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, hap- what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant against James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But but whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is our Lord's holy and inerrant word. Well, if you haven't already, you can go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verses 35 through 45 this morning. And and as we get started, I'd love to pose a question, especially y'all who like history, armchair historians here. What makes a man great? Getting to go to seminary these last three years, I've had the opportunity to study many great men of history People that seminary professors and industry leaders feel that uh, future church leaders should know about, should emulate. And my question this morning is, what makes someone great? We talk about great men of history, great leaders, great warriors, great heroes of the faith. I have a three-volume biography of Winston Churchill that's been sitting up on my bookshelf for, for about two years and I've just given up on finishing it at this point. It's huge. The books are so heavy. These books written to encapsulate this one man's life are so heavy. At this point, they're just serving as home defense weapons. I mean, that's what I feel like they're good for at this point. Bad guys come. You better watch out. Winston's coming for you. There's no question that Christians do weigh the greatness of other Christians. And we should Follow me as I follow Christ, said Paul. We love to adore people that we love. We give book deals to people that are successful. We invite them to speak at our conferences. We tell their stories. We write books about them. And while there is no shortage of answers to the question of where Christians locate greatness, 
Today we're going to be looking at what Jesus admires in those who follow him. We will see that according to Mark chapter 10, Christian greatness is not found in the exercise of authority, but in humble service to others. So let's get started. The Gospel of Mark is broken into two movements. The first movement, chapters 1 through 8, focuses on the public ministry of Jesus and shows us that Jesus is the Messiah, like he's been saying he is. And then the second movement, chapters 8 through 16, focuses on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and culminates in his death. Mark chapter 10 takes place in that second movement. And in the midst of three cycles of Jesus predicting his own death, the disciples missing the point, and Jesus being attested to by miracles and teaching. As if it weren't obvious enough that the disciples don't get it, we get to learn this lesson three times. And when I read Mark and I think about the disciples, I'm just so glad someone is not following my life around with a pen and paper. Now, this narrative takes place after Jesus' third prediction of his death in chapter 10. In Mark 10, 35 through 45, we can, we can divide this chapter, this section, in half this morning. In verses 35 through 40, we learn that Jesus' disciples share in his suffering. Jesus' disciples share in his suffering. And in the second half, verses 41 through 45, Jesus' disciples share in his serving. So let's go ahead and get started by rereading verse 35 together. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Then he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now Peter, James, and John comprise what we often call the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Often when Jesus is, is doing a specific revelation, he has a very distinct teaching. He takes these three men aside and gives them this very uh, special experience. And as commentator R.T. France observes, with Peter absent from this story, we're, we should already be suspicious of these brothers' motives. They've kind of cut out the other guy, and they're already, we can tell, doing something they shouldn't be doing. They're making a move for power. They corner Jesus, and as Jerusalem gets closer, Jesus is going to reveal that he is king of the Jews. So if James and John are going to have a shot at a good position in the kingdom, it is now or never. So the brothers take Jesus aside, kind of corner him, I like to think, out in a field, like, hey, hey, Jesus, come over here. And the brothers ask to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand when he comes in glory. When Jesus becomes king, they want to be his princes. James and John have been selective in their hearing because they do understand that Jesus is coming in glory. But they refuse to understand that that glory does not come with grandeur. That glory comes with death. Let's look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus patiently warns them that they are asking for something that they don't understand. Earlier, back in chapter 8, Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to stop him from going to the cross. And Jesus is confronting the same problem in chapter 10. The disciples don't understand the path to glory. 
the cross before the crown. The disciples make their move along the natural path. From a worldly perspective, this makes sense. You have 12 guys that you're competing with, maybe 700 more following back behind Jesus. You have this special relationship with your rabbi. You get in while the, while the going's good. A self-centered power grab is the way to go. And Jesus reveals, however, that in his kingdom, the path to greatness is not uh, one with a self-centered power grab. It's one by drinking a cup and by taking a baptism. Now, we're going to do a little theological deep dive, okay? So hold your breath. Let's dive in. This will take us just a few minutes, so engage your brain with me. What's this cup he's talking about? He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? In the Old Testament, there's this cup that God gives to people on earth. This cup is sometimes filled with wrath, right? It's metaphorical. Sometimes it's filled with wrath. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup is sometimes filled with blessing. Psalm 16 verse 5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And sometimes it's associated with the sufferings of God's people generally. Isaiah 51 verses 17 through 23, we read in 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Then as commentator James Edwards writes, it's clear in context that this cup is referring to suffering in general, the sufferings of God's people that they experience on earth. Which meaning is Jesus intending here? Clearly not blessing, as this cup is mentioned with some foreboding. Punishment could be a candidate, as the cup is mentioned by Jesus in chapter 14, as one that he drinks on behalf of the many, taking the punishment on behalf of the many. But the punishment that Jesus will endure on the cross is one of a kind. It's unique. In what sense can a follower of Jesus be said to share in the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death? Right? When, when you suffer as a Christian, you aren't paying for anyone else's sins. If someone comes up to you other than Jesus and says, Brother or sister, I'm suffering right now to pay for your sins, you should slap that person and run away. Our salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. It is all Jesus and none of us. So we don't share in in helping to pay the penalty for other people's sin. No, I think that it seems best to to see the cup as representing Jesus' suffering. And Jesus has told us what that suffering will look like back in verse 34. We read that in our scripture reading, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Suffering is indeed something that James and John will share in, and baptism too. When Jesus says, Are you, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Baptism is a metaphor for suffering. The idea is that suffering surrounds us. It is inescapable but sovereignly controlled by God. Okay, so back to the theological surface. Take a breath. Jesus asks the brothers, are you able to drink this cup? Are you able to take this baptism? 
And James and John just kind of take the question at face value. Look at verse 39 with me. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared Jesus assures them that they will indeed drink of his cup and be baptized with his baptism, but that these experiences will not grant them what they've asked for. In other words, suffering along with Jesus is not the condition under which the disciples are granted positions in Jesus' kingdom. Suffering is just the reasonable cost of discipleship. We'll come back to that later. But for the time being, it's good to see that Jesus does not deny that some will indeed receive positions of honor in his kingdom. When we go to glory, when we go to be with Jesus in the new earth and the new heavens, there will be some among us who will be given positions of authority and power in that kingdom. But no one can earn himself a place in those positions by ambition or through suffering. The fact of the matter is, Jesus gives no indication about who will be given places of honor and power in his kingdom. The point is that we disciples should not concern ourselves about which seat we will occupy in the kingdom. Why? That we should trust God who rewards according to his own wisdom. True disciples of Jesus do not look out for their own interests. They're not trying to advance their interests with Jesus. We follow Jesus humbly, like beggars who know we have no place being in the presence of a king. And Jesus shows James and John that they will share in his sufferings. They will go where he goes. But not only will they share in his sufferings, they will also share in his serving. Look at verse 41 with me. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, James and John, it seems, returned to the group, probably dejected. They took their grab at power, and it seems that they failed and the disciples kind of gang up on the brothers here. They're, they get mad. It says they're indignant. And the idea isn't that they're indignant that the disciples would ask such a question, but that the disciples asked first. They wanted to be the ones getting those positions of power. And you can just imagine the kind of patience that Jesus possesses in a moment like this. Here is 12 disciples squabbling over positions of power as he's about to go to the cross to die for them. And so he just kindly gathers them, gently gathers them together to teach them about the nature of leadership in the kingdom. And he does this with a little comparison and contrast. He singles out what he calls the rulers of the Gentiles. Those are those who exercise dominion, absolute authority out in the world. He points to those people and say, look, we have a lesson to learn from them. Because at this time, the Jews were operating as a puppet state. They had no real power Anything that they were allowed to do, they were on a short leash, and that leash was held by Rome. Rome was the one with the power. And the unusual phrasing of this verse, those who are considered rulers, is drawing attention to earthly rulers who flaunt their authority in a way that is domineering, that is oppressive, that is unchecked. People respect leaders that flex. And Jesus doesn't. Look at verse 43. 
but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So in sharp contrast, it shall not be so among you. This isn't a rebuke, it's a statement of fact, as if to say this is just the way things are in the kingdom. No one goes into a position of power that way. It shall not be so among you. And thanks be to God for that. This phrase can serve as a summary of the surprising nature of Jesus' kingdom. No one leaps over the wall into Jesus' kingdom. No one enters the kingdom of God through force. While leadership in the kingdom of the world is exercised or characterized by exercises of authority, leadership in the kingdom of Jesus is characterized by submission to the needs of others. Jesus addresses the disciples' concern with being foremost and with being greatest by using two very strong word pictures. The first one is this. The one who would be great among the disciples must become a servant of the disciples. Well, from a worldly perspective, that doesn't make any sense. You don't go to the top by going to the bottom. Unlike the great people of the world whose greatness is, in, is seen in their domineering authority, the great people of Jesus are identified by their acts of sacrificial service. We will know who's great in the kingdom by those who are serving others right now. Soon after the events of Mark 10, Jesus would take his disciples to an upper room where he would wash their feet. An act of menial servitude that highlights Jesus' self-denying others-centered love. Jesus came to serve. He washed his disciples' feet. He never lived a day for himself, but for us. Jesus came to serve, and the greatest in the kingdom of God serve. The second word picture is even more radical than the first. Jesus says that the disciples must become slaves of all. Now, slavery is a taboo topic in modern times, and it makes me squirm to see Christians described by our Lord Jesus as slaves is shocking. What is meant by the use of this noun in the Greek? It's doulos, translated slave, sometimes bond servant or bond slave. Murray Harris, a biblical scholar, defines doulos, the Greek word we often translate as slave, as someone whose person and service belong completely to another. In Judaism, slaves were this unskilled labor force. And as former slaves themselves, the Jews had laws against mistreating their slaves. And, and the Romans didn't really have that. In Greek thought, freedom was the greatest treasure a person to possess. So if someone entered into slavery, either willingly or, or uh, through capture, through force, that person was subhuman because they didn't have their freedoms about them. Masters in ancient Rome practiced dominium absolute ownership of their slaves, their work, and their person. Now, that's a, a horrific thing to be in in first century Rome. However, Jesus takes this metaphor and applies it everywhere in the New Testament. We see it everywhere, and it can carry a number of meanings. In fact, slave is one of Paul's favorite titles for himself. He calls himself a slave of God. He calls himself a slave of Christ. He calls himself a slave to other Christians. Before salvation, we, all people, are slaves of the world. We're slaves to the law. We're slaves to our own desires. 
And according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Christians are those who have been set free from slavery to all their vices and to the reign of evil on earth. Our shackles have been broken. We don't follow the master who runs things down here. Our master is Christ. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This freedom is defined later in Galatians as a freedom to serve. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom in Christ is bound, you could even say is enslaved, to the service of others. Or to put it biblically, Christians are no longer enslaved to serve their own needs, but they're enslaved, freed to serve other people. Again, Galatians 1.10 says, For now am I seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? For if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Do you hear Paul boasting in his title there? If I was serving man, I couldn't call myself a slave of Christ. How about that for a little Facebook bio, slave of Christ? True freedom is slavery to God's will. Those who are enslaved to God find that their master is not undesirable, is not cruel, is not self-serving, but worthy of all submission. Harris puts it so well, this biblical scholar, and he says, quote, the most convincing evidence of the possession of freedom is the willingness to surrender it. To be a slave is to have a Lord. Christians are slaves to our Lord Jesus Christ. And compared to our first Lord's sin and death, Jesus is a Lord who places a like, a light, an easy yoke on us. Jesus says to himself in Matthew 11, he urges us, he woos us with this light and easy yoke. In fact, Paul says that the sufferings that we endure as slaves of Jesus in this life cannot compare to the glory that we're going to enjoy with him soon. And while the lords of this earth are selfish, oppressive, and enjoy making public displays of their excessive power, the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to serve rather than be served. As slaves of our servant Lord, Christians gladly follow Jesus' lead. Jesus wraps up his teaching by using himself as the example of the kind of servant leadership he's interested. Let's look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus came for two purposes according to this verse. First, he came to serve. And in the immediate context, this is seen in his patient teaching to the disciples. They botched it again, and he patiently gathers them and teaches them truth. And it's also seen in his miracles, his kindness to the people around him in Galilee. But the journey of servanthood culminates at the cross. The cross is the ultimate expression of service to others. And in the economy of the kingdom, suffering and service are often one and the same. Second, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. This idea of a suffering servant, this is not an idea that Mark makes up. 
it goes all the way back to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. The Son of Man as the suffering servant, servant comes to rule, not through an exercise of earthly power and dominion, but through his suffering service for others. The unfathomable greatness of Jesus' power, the greatness that the world keeps missing, the power of his leadership that the world keeps missing is his humble service to others. And as we close, I'd like us to consider four applications from this passage, four ways we can bring the truths of this passage to bear on our lives this week. First, following Jesus involves suffering with Jesus. While James and John did not know what they were asking for when, uh, in drinking Jesus' cup and partaking of his baptism, those who read the Gospel of Mark do those familiar with the biblical text read about the cup, read about the baptism, and knows what it means for Jesus. He's going to die. We know what it means for James. He's going to die. We know what it's going to mean for John. He's going to be imprisoned alone on an island, and then he's going to die. And we know what it means for ourselves. Suffering for Jesus is the fate of every follower of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if, if you're in a position of Christian leadership of any kind, you have a responsibility to share those, to prepare those under your care for suffering. Parents, I want you to consider that the Lord has placed you in a position of spiritual authority over your kids. How are you preparing your children for suffering right now? When they come to salvation, if the Lord is kind to grant your children salvation, will they be shocked by the trials that they endure? Will they be blindsided by the fight to follow Jesus when the whole world is running the opposite direction? We must teach our children both the easy and the hard sayings of Jesus. Husbands and fathers, I want you to consider how the Lord has placed you in a position of spiritual authority over your family, your little flock. Are you teaching your kids to love their Lord even when it means sharing in his cup of suffering? Is your spouse being encouraged to trust in Jesus because you cling to Christ, your rock, even when the waters of baptism of suffering surround you? Brothers, if you are willing to step into that baptism with Jesus and wade through the waters of affliction with Jesus, your family is going to learn that Jesus is worth it. Second, this kind of radical service Jesus requires of us, it's merely our reasonable service to him. Jesus suffers he renders service, and the whole church is ransomed. He dies for us, and a whole people is set free. A people is freed from slavery to sin, from slavery to death. Disciples render service, and it's all in a day's work. It's reasonable. We're slaves to Christ. We have an amazing master who loves us. This is what we're called to. After we suffer for Christ, he doesn't owe us anything. The debt we still owe him is greater than we could possibly imagine. And we're free from that debt to serve him in freedom. Brothers and sisters, consider what the Lord may be calling you to do in this season. Consider 
how as a people freed from slavery to sin and death, we don't have to go, hey man, I set up chairs for church today. I get a place at the right hand of God. We get to say, oh my goodness, I am a disciple of Jesus. I deserve death and now I have life. I'll do anything that Jesus asks me to do. God will call you to do things that don't make sense to other people. Is he calling you to give sacrificially in a way that would make your financial advisor uncomfortable? Is he calling you to endure slander without retaliation, to turn the other cheek? Brothers, is he calling you to give up weekday evenings, time with your family, sleep at night to serve the church as an elder? Sisters, is he calling you to add to your list of others-centered service, parenting, home care, a job, and to add to that even more time devoted as a deacon? Jesus may call you, brothers and sisters, to menial tasks of the kingdom, not a ministry of teaching, social media, influence, and praise, but a ministry of table cleaning and foot washing. That may very be what God is calling you to in this season. Sarah Young, that very popular Christian author, was right about one thing. Jesus is calling but we must be willing to choose the hard things if that's where Jesus is calling us to go. I once heard a man, uh, I once knew of a man who, who got saved later in life, and when he looked at this passage, he said, if there are floors in heaven, man, I'll be happy so long as I get to be the one that scrubs them. Our joy at being set free from slavery to sin makes us happy slaves to Jesus. We're willing to do whatever he wants. Are you willing to do whatever he wants. Thirdly, Christian leaders must recognize that they are faced with a choice every time they exercise leadership. Do we, put our, do we pursue our own desires or do we put the desires of Jesus first? If Christians are to exercise leadership after Jesus, we must be willing to submit to the needs of others, living to serve rather than to be served This is the desire of Jesus revealed in Mark chapter 10, and it is the thrust of Christian leadership in Scripture. The great ones in the kingdom of Jesus are servants. The foremost in the kingdom of Jesus are slaves to all. In fact, brothers and sisters, this idea is so fundamental to church leadership, it influences the very terms Scripture uses. The Greek word for servant is diakonos. Does that sound familiar to you? That's because that's our English word for deacon. Later today, we're going to have the privilege of installing a new deacon of kids' ministry, a servant for kids' ministry. Deacons lay down their gifts for the church, and our shepherds, our elders, lay down their lives for the church. When Paul gives instructions for church leadership, organization, excuse me, when he he talks about church organization, he describes its officers with two verbs, not nouns, They are people defined by their actions, right? A runner is someone who runs. A baker is someone who bakes. An elder is someone who shepherds. And a deacon is someone who serves. And the offices of the world are king, ruler, dictator. And the offices of the church are shepherd and servant. From top to bottom, Christian greatness is not the exercise of authority, but the exercise of humble service. Brothers and sisters, these people are gifts to our church. 
Thank Jesus for giving you the deacons. You can go on our website and scroll through, see our deacons, and just go, Jesus, thank you. We don't deserve these people. Watch their lives. Emulate them. Learn true greatness from their sacrificial service and thank them. Thank Jesus for giving you these elders. Scroll through the website, see them in there, and thank Jesus for them. Brothers and sisters, during this internship, I've been on the inside of elders' meetings, and what these men give to humbly serve this body is staggering. Prayer and counsel and wisdom and kind words and tears and exhortations and encouragements and sleepless nights. You have all benefited from the selfless ministry of these brothers Gifts to you from Jesus. And not to mention that their families give up so much so that these men can serve Christ's church. Thank Jesus for these men. Thank Jesus for their incredible families. And pray for them. Encourage them. And gladly submit to them. Jesus' under-shepherds exercise greatness through their humble service to you. And brothers and sisters, Jesus' bride exercises greatness through humble submission to them. Finally, last word and then we're done. Suffering and ambition are not prerequisites to being considered for seats of honor in the kingdom of Jesus. It is not revealed who gets those coveted seats. Jesus even says it's not for me to determine for whom those are chosen. The point is that Christians should not occupy themselves with concern over who is greatest in the kingdom of Jesus, but on serving others just like Jesus did. Jesus' kingdom flips every human value and assumption about society on its head, leadership included, while the world may preoccupy itself with glory grabs and power plays. Disciples of Jesus are content to continue in their Lord's way, regardless of the prominence of the place they end up in, because we'll be with our master. James and John lusted for power spots, the right hand and left hand of Jesus. And as one commentator noted, at the revealing of the glory of Jesus, two do indeed sit at Jesus' right hand and at his left hand. Mark 15, verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Friends, the question Jesus asks James and John is intended for you. Are you able to drink his cup? Are you able to participate in his baptism? To be mocked and spit on, verse 34 says. Beaten and killed, verse 34 says. And our resounding answers, brothers and sisters, is no, we can't. That's why Christians leave the faith. That's why celebrity pastors fall. That's why the prosperity gospel is one of the fastest growing cults in North America. Because we can't take this cup. We can't participate in Jesus' baptism. You can't drink the cup of Jesus' suffering unless Jesus drinks your cup of wrath first. Scripture tells us that God is a consuming fire and that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. He hates your sin. He is too good. He is too just to just let it go unpunished. And if you are not in Christ, you will drink the cup 
of God's wrath against you. And that cup is so deep and that wrath is so intense, you will go on drinking it forever. That's hell, a state of punishment being consumed forever by the anger of God towards your sin. And that is why Jesus came to earth to drink this cup for you. He did it. He drank it down to the dregs. There is not an ounce of wrath left for those who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And in the face of full pardon, total forgiveness, we can endure anything for Jesus so long as we have him. There's no test at the end of earthly trials. There's no purgatory to clean up the inside of that cup. Jesus paid it all. Christians are the ones who look at Jesus on the cross, gasping his last words and rejoice. It is finished. We look at the cross and say, see, I can endure anything for Jesus because Jesus endured that for me. Friends, Jesus is worth losing everything for. My prayer for you, brother or sister, friend, if you're not in Christ yet, is that you would see Jesus that you would count the cost of discipleship and see that it is, it is worth it to lose everything to have Jesus, the priceless treasure, the one for whom all eternity sings. The truly great in the kingdom of God are those who follow Jesus in becoming servants of all. So now, now let's look to the cross and sing out his praises together. Let's pray. Lord, we look at what your son suffered on earth, even before the cross, and so many of us cry out, we can't do that. We can't drink that cup. We can't take that baptism. We look at the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, and we know that we could not have taken the cup of wrath. Oh, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf, Lord. It is my earnest expectation and hope that you will save some today, even as we prayed in our prayer of confession and assurance. Save souls today. And those of us who are in Christ God, I pray that each time we look at Jesus, we'd see, yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's worth it, no matter what I'm going through right now. And as we sing, that Jesus is better, I pray that our hearts would believe it, O oh Lord, and make our hearts believe this truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.